really was the first one who started saying that. <laughs> yeah. So, so all the libs like on Instagram are like support the real boys in blue with like pictures right. of mail carriers are like, those are the nice. Dino did it. Um, yeah. He has a great liberal following on Instagram. You know, <laughs> the resistance yeah. lives love Dino. <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty much like Joanne Reed. Uh, who right. else, Ben, you know this better than I do. Like who else is like a big lib these days? The other ones have like either been arrested or like kicked off of, of Twitter. Um, <laughs> Like, who is that lawyer? God, I'm, I'm brain farting on the lawyer. Who's the lawyer? The the guy who's going to reveal the documents that shows that Trump was, you know, being oh. investigated by the... Oh, Mueller? No, no, no. No, no, no. no. Oh. The, uh, the guy... Are you talking about the the guy who was like Stormy Daniels' lawyer? Yes. Yeah, I don't remember his name. Anyway, fuck. Yeah, <laughs> fuck. Yeah, it's that funny. It's like, he had like... 10 bajillion Twitter followers at one point. Now he's just like, uh, we don't fuck. The people who follow the news are like, yeah, who the fuck knows who that guy was? <laughs> Life comes at you fast on Twitter. <laughs> it's Michael Avenatti, you idiots. Can we just start the show? Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother... What's up, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Dead Pundit Society. We have got a packed cast of characters on the show today. I'm just going to shout them out real quick, and we're going to get right into it. Joining us, as always, is my co-host, Ben Burgess. Hey, Adam. And we've got Brianna Last on the show. You guys will remember Brianna. She is a uh, new addition to DPS. Brianna signing in from Philly. So, and then last but not least, joining us for the little intro material here we're going to hit you guys with shortly is Mr. Paul Prescott. You guys will know Paul. He's been on the show multiple times. He's also a member of Philly DSA. Paul, how you doing, my man? Thanks. Give the, give the listeners a really quick kind of introduction to yourself if they haven't caught your last two banger episodes on DPS. Hey, uh, great to be back. I'm glad to see it now. Philly DSA has 50% on this committee now. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I'm a, I'm a public school teacher in Philly, active in my union, active in Philadelphia labor. You might have seen my um, problematic Jacobin pieces. What's the latest one? What's the latest problematic, hashtag problematic Jacobin <laughs> piece that you put out? We'll, we'll, we'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, well, I wrote a review of uh, Calvin Baker, an author. Um, he has a new book out called A More Perfect Reunion, which is, well, it was supposed to be about integration, which I was kind of looking forward to. I was interested in what he had to say. but. Long story short, I, it was pretty disappointing. I kind of I got the vibe he was trying to be the next Ta-Nehisi Coates or the next James Baldwin. So, you know, full of a lot of contra- contradictions. I think trying to challenge anti-racist thought, but at the same time, replicating it in many ways. Yeah. So, Paul, hopefully we can talk a little bit about that in a minute. But the reason that we brought you on to the show is because, you know, for several months, in the past year, I think every other week you would text me something about the Postal Service. And so I thought you'd be the perfect person to talk about what's been going on with USPS. So just briefly, give us give us an update. Yeah. So and I'll say first, I kind of feel a little validated, like for literally two years, that's all I would talk about. And now that's what everyone's talking about. But, um, you know, so the pandemic is bringing to a head some dynamics that have been developing for a while. So the Postal Service, just like the whole country and other businesses, they took a financial hit from COVID. But the real story, I'll have to go back to 2006 um, in terms of why the Postal Service is doing so bad financially. 
So there was a law passed by Congress called the Postal Accountability and Enhancement Act of 2006, and it made the Postal Service pre-fund its uh, pensions and health care benefits for employees 75 years into advance. So there is literally no other government entity, no other private business that has to do that. And, you know, before that law, they were actually running a surplus. And the Postal Service doesn't take taxpayer money, by the way. Many people don't know that. But they were perfectly sufficient. And ever since that law, they've been running a deficit. So they, they have to set aside literally billions of dollars a year for that mandate. And any rational person would ask, you know, why the hell would they do that? And this, to me, was a clear effort at trying to privatize. So, you know, you defund the public service, you throw it into crisis, and now it's the excuse to privatize. So, you know, fast forward to 2018, what they call the Postal Board of Governors, and many of these people now were appointed by Trump. They actually put out a report and they came out and said it. They want to privatize the Postal Service. So that was kind of into the lead up. And then you have COVID. So that just made the situation worse. So they've been asking for, meaning uh, the Postal Service has been asking for $25 billion in relief money, which is nothing in comparison to all the bailouts that these uh, corporations have been getting and the slush funds and the stock buybacks they've been getting. There was bipartisan support in the first bill, stimulus bill, and uh, the Trump administration actually intervened personally to stop it. So like he's clearly gunning, gunning for it right now. And then another development is the new postmaster general, Louis DeJoy, appointed by Trump. Um, a lot of people focus on the fact that he's a big Republican donor, and that that's definitely true. But his background is actually in logistics. Um, he owned a logistics company that was very good at automating jobs and getting rid of them. Um, he also literally owns stock in companies that are competing with the Postal Service. And he, a few weeks ago, now you have the funding crisis, he put in place a bunch of new policies that have the effect of delaying mail, you know, eliminating overtime, limiting hours of post offices, these new rules where um, postal workers have to, you know, have to leave for their route, even if the mail isn't all sorted in time, which was never done before. So it's delaying mail. And I think they're getting a double whammy out of this. So it helps to further their effort to privatize. And it's also, I think it's pretty obvious at this point, this is a an attempt to steal the election, either through these delays or just letting it run out of money. So it, it, it's becoming a big crisis. Yeah, that's really helpful context. So tell us a little more about um, what the APWU has been doing to counter some of this. I mean, what what have they done so far? So it's, you know, it's tricky because legally postal workers cannot strike and, you know, it's easy to say from the outside, you should just do it anyway. But, you know, so far it hasn't come to that. So, you know, they've been trying traditional lobbying tactics and, you know, calling uh, Congress people. And, you know, they, they had a call in day recently that was actually the largest they've ever done. So they are getting some traction that way. They're trying to get in the media a lot, which I think, I mean, has been working. And I think it's just becoming a bigger crisis so that it is playing into it. They are in certain local areas. I mean, I think maybe later I can talk about what we're, we're doing in Philly or what others can do, but partnering with um, organizations such as, I mean, DSA in, in certain areas, Communities and Postal Workers United. Um, they had a day of action on June 23rd, rallies in different cities around this. Um, but I mean, this is a, a, a political fight. There's been some suggestions around people should buy stamps. That's great and all, but it's not going to make up the billion dollar funding thing. Um, you, mm. you might not be able to 
see it clearly, but there is, I have a framed uh, Marvin Gaye stamp that's on the USPS website. That's really mm-hmm. cool. So people should do that, but you know, it, <laughs> that's limited. So this is a political fight, but I mean, it's it, again, it, it's tough. They're, they're in a pretty tough position um, right now, but I, I think public, the public opinion is on their side and believe it or not. I mean, centrist Democrats are actually starting to actually mobilize around this and they're getting pretty scared about it. And, you know, I was just listening to the radio today and they had someone on from the Philadelphia Urban League, hardly, uh, you know, a radical fashion in there, but talking mm-hmm. about postal service as a priority. So, yeah, that's kind of what, they, what they've been trying to do so far. What's interesting, you know, you mentioned that the postal service has is really popular. I think it has something like 90% support, yeah. you know, when you... When 91%, you yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, it, it's really been taken up in the culture war in a, in a way that's like I don't normally applaud, but like I I, I kind of like your take on this, Paul, and, and everybody else. Obviously, Ben, you, you write extensively about the culture war. Like I, I don't know, you guys, t- tell me how to feel about this. I don't know how to feel about this. Like I, I peruse Instagram and Facebook and see like political normies, you know, people for whom politics is not a hobby or a vocation, like us, we're fucking weirdos, right? I see normies. Uh, tweeting like you know support the real boys in blue, and it's like pictures <laughs> of mail carriers, you know. Like it's like a yeah, take statement. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, the key thing about the 91% is it cuts across partisan lines. So Democrat, Republican, independent. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, and of course a lot of liberals and, and this is an actually interesting moment where liberal hysteria, which by the way, one time in a million, I actually think the hysteria is very warranted for this crisis that it really is about stealing the election. So it actually kind of intersects nicely with our priorities. So, you know, I was just, we, we were setting up in Philly to fly our post offices because now it's affecting customers with mail being delayed and everyone knew what was going on, like, cause it's in the news. So yeah, I mean, it, it can only benefit that this is in the news. Now, many people might only emphasize the election like resistant liberals. So they might not emphasize that. Not, uh, yeah, we don't want the election stolen, but we also don't want to lose 600,000 living wage jobs. You know, they might not emphasize that. But again, I mean, I, if there's ever a culture war, this is a better one to have than mass or whatever the hell. I don't even know what, what goes on. Yeah, you mentioned, you mentioned uh, 600,000 jobs. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, the majority of those jobs are unionized jobs. Talk about, right. and you've written extensively about this, talk a little bit about how the Postal Service has been a source of employment and a kind of entryway into the middle class for a lot of Black workers. Yeah, there's, I don't think anyone, I don't know if anyone's seen this movie, but uh, if you've seen the movie Hollywood Shuffle, I think from the 90s, um, there's this line in there saying there's always work at the post office, which is like a joke, but actually a very real thing for many Black people. And it's kind of this like known, anecdotal thing that like yeah we all know someone that has work at the post office Good. okay here we go take one action the rain sleet and snow i deliver your mail i'm a u.s postman and you can be one too i deliver people's dreams and more importantly i have the respect and the admiration of the entire community and that makes me proud so if you can't take pride in your job remember there's always work at the post office so, I mean, going back even to, to 1861, postal jobs were opened to uh, black workers. And it, I mean, it's one of like the only kind of stable employment you could get as a black worker. And there was a lot of former slaves who fought in the 54th Massachusetts Regiment 
got jobs as postal workers um, afterwards. So it really goes that far back. And, you know, in the early 20th century, postal workers kind of had this similar um, aura as Pullman carporters. So it was basically like two jobs that were considered like stable working class black jobs. Porters and postal workers were another one of them. So they kind of had this prestige around that and also kind of prestige as like civic, civically engaged people. So, you know, they were kind of part of that early civil rights labor alliance that included A. Philip Randolph, but also some of these early um, postal worker unions. And just to give a sense of like how important this kind of employment was, already in 1940, 14% of black workers that made above the national median income worked for the postal service. That's a lung sector all the way back in 1940. And this, I mean, this kind of tracks with the public sector more in general. And even in the, in the 60s, especially for black women who didn't really have much options in their private sector, uh, the Postal Service kind of became a haven. And, um, you know, one thing with this, the Civil Rights Act of 1963, obviously it struck down Jim Crow, but it also opened up like uh, protections for federal employment. And this is why Black people are disproportionately public sector workers. And on average, Black public sector workers make so much more than workers in the private sector. So, and then today, um, you know, the average salary of a postal worker is $55,000 a year, which is not living large, but like that's stable. You got benefits, you can retire. So 21% of those uh, postal workers today are Black. So, you know, this is really, it doesn't sound like it, but it's a huge racial justice issue because like, these are the kind, I mean, really for everyone, I mean, but these are the kinds of jobs that are like people can't afford to lose. And especially if you look in black communities, like these are kind of the only stable jobs around. So this would be a disaster to privatize the postal service and lose these jobs. And if you want to talk about, you know, the racial wealth gap, which I don't think is always the most helpful way to look at these things, but like stuff like that, you know, destroying the postal service will just make that gap even worse. So yeah, I think people should really think about this, you know, when you talk about racial justice, like post, postal services, one of the, uh, should be a priority. Let's loop in a discussion now with uh, some friends of the show and former uh, friends of ours, colleagues, comrades, and, and former guests of DPS. Um, Walter Ben Michaels and Adolph Reed Jr. published a piece this past week in Common Dreams called The Trouble with Disparity. And <clears throat> this is not a new topic to them, right? This is like one of their main hobby horses. It's what they're known for. They've, um, you know, really... Uh, broken ground on the, the, that kind of analysis, that kind of assessment um, in a real way. But this piece is like one of the most succinct, succinct treatments of this kind of troubling diversity narrative that this disparitarian ideal that uh, really blocks, uh, you know, it prevents clarity around the issue of what causes these disparities in the first place, right? Like as with most things in the liberal uh, you know, ideological universe, it obscures more than it reveals. And it produces this kind of alternate, you know, uh, rhetorical reality, wherein like, this is where the culture war comes in, right? And obfuscates the stakes and and the ways out of these impasses. You know, it's, kind of, it's just funny. I just wanted to throw that in there just to, to kind of, for some relief as to how the disparities that, you know, people talk about between whites, non-whites, blacks, other races, about how that is, you know, addressed in comparison to like bread and butter trade unionism. It's like you want to support a black worker, fucking support the post office, right? We don't need 
you know, disparity rhetoric. We don't need Robin D'Angelo to, to, to fix our, uh, our broken brains. I just kind of want to throw that into the mix a little bit. I mean, I mean, I think the big question with me, I, I mean, and part of why I appreciate Adolf's work is like, he, he's an actual organizer and you can tell that comes through is like, you know, with the disparity stuff is like practically, okay, so what next? So it's like, sure. The postal service disproportionately benefits black workers, I would say, but you know, so this is at the end of the day, this is still about saving a universal service that, of course, also affects many, many white workers, many, many white people that live in rural areas. So like at the end of the day, the solution to disparity is still forming the broadest coalition possible around the universal service. So, you know, it's like only so many times we can say until we're blue in the face, like black people have it worse in X, Y or Z. And at a certain point, like I feel like if you graduated high school, and you're not in like, I don't know, I was about to say the South, but I think they probably know that more. But, you know, mm-hmm. if you if you graduated high school, you probably know by now where the disparities line up generally, you know. So, again, it's like practically, okay, so what next? Um, does this really change what we actually have to do practically? Yeah, one of my favorite lines in the piece is where they kind of outline the two problems with uh, racial disparities logic which is that eliminating racial disparities doesn't get us in the direction of a more equal society, but it also isn't even the best way of eliminating racial disparities themselves. Um, And you've talked about this, Paul, and in your labor notes piece, you touch on the way in which the fight for postal uh, postal service workers is a fight for Black lives. Right. Yeah. I mean, and it's it's the type of thing where it's like we could you know, we could defund the police. I mean, we could, or we could prevent further funding of the police. We could, you know, we could have great accountability measures, but, you know, if this austerity goes through, which is slated to go through, where they're predicting five and a half million jobs are going to have to be cut at the state and local level in the years to come, if we don't have a massive stimulus, you know, we could have the most accountable police in the world, but like, that's not going to do much for, so many black public sector workers. So, I mean, I guess I'll sound like a broken record after a while, but, you know, it's just, uh, you know, and, and I guess the other thing, the point I want to make with that piece in Labor Notes was, it, and then it comes back to this thing of like priorities and like, we always want to say we can do everything, but we can't. And especially when we're talking about, again, this austerity that's coming, it's going to be so hard to fight. And it's also, you know, building big coalitions is very hard. And like, yeah, building unity between, let's say, a white working class person in the suburbs and a black person in the city is actually hard. So we maybe we should just spend 99% of our time really figuring out that hard work. And if, if we're going to be serious about it, we, we kind of have to be all in about it. And to me, the austerity fight is going to be key. You know, and, and they've already destroyed the private sector, mostly, unfortunately. There's about 6% union density in the private sector. Public sector, there's still 33% union density, believe it or not. So that's partly why they're coming after it. But also, I mean, even ideologically for socialists, like we need to save the idea of a public anything, let let alone a socialist anything. And it's like, if we let them destroy the postal service, for example, that's just like one more defeat for us ideologically as well, that we can have a public anything, you know? And I'm not trying to say the postal service is socialism, but it's like, yeah, more stuff like that would get us there, you know. Yeah, in terms of, you know, the two big sectors that elites have been attacking, 
our education and the postal service. And what's telling about the, you know, the Enhancement and Accountability Act that you talked about was that it was passed with bipartisan support. Right. And it's, yeah, and this is kind of interesting that, you know, I think, you know, the resistance liberals rallying around the postal service, again, which is great, I'll, I'll take it. But, you know, it basically seemed like the Democratic Party has been on this track where sooner or later, without a change, like maybe Kamala Harris in 2028 would privatize the postal service, mm-hmm. you know. So it'll be interesting that like ideological dynamic, like for maybe some more of these middle class liberals, like long term, will they be more ideologically committed to not privatizing or is this just about the election for them? But yeah, it, I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, like a lot of it's about the election. Um, I mean, I've even seen some resistance lib types bringing up uh, Bernie Sanders blocking uh, some of the uh, the Obama appointments, you know, right. to the people uh, the who wanted to privatize close to <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. But like the line is, oh, Trump couldn't be doing this now if only we'd gotten these Obama appointees in, and you know, yeah. look who is stopping that, Bernie Sanders. Uh, we had again the underlying issue was that maybe not as fast, you know, but like that the these were appointees who had a history of making statements about how they wanted to do exactly this, right? So, I mean, maybe the hope is that if um, is that some of the resistance lib hysteria about this, which you know, as you say, it's not unjustified, right? Like there's right. there's actually. Like the concern about stealing the election is like extremely real, but yeah. like, but but the sort of narrow focus on the election will at least result in the post office being talked about a lot and a lot of people being reminded that like they really like this, uh, right. and um, you know that that ninety one percent certainly isn't, you know, certainly isn't all about the election. I mean, like that's about right. people knowing that this provides a lot of good jobs. That's about people knowing that. Uh, this provides mail service in rural areas that you would never get, you know, with a privatized version of it, you know, where there just wouldn't be the right. incentive that uh, people knowing that this is something that'll take like a, like it's the only entity that will take something that you send in California to Alaska, you know, for 50 cents. Right. And it's the type of thing, I mean, I, as soon as you tell people about the 2006 law, they're like, oh, wow. You know, and I mean, for, for most people, the only objection, like, well, I do here is running out of money. And if you tell them about that law, it's like, oh, okay. You know, I mean, when I was flowering today, it was just overwhelming support. So, yeah, it's like telling like a five-year-old that they have to put X amount of money away every year so that they can retire at 80. Uh, and if right. they go broke or insolvent in the meantime, like, uh, I don't know, like they get thrown out on the street instantly, you know, it's, it's, it's just like, it's just utterly bizarre, but I will say like, you know, I mean, there's a, there's obviously, in, in, there's an, inc- I mean, look, we can, <laughs> we can dunk on the resistance libs and the wine moms and Lord knows I do. It's a blast. It's a, let's keep doing it. I don't, by the way, this is not me saying like, we should stop. Like, let's keep doing this as soon as I say what I'm about to say. But, <laughs> but, uh, like here's an instance where like there is a rhetorical and ideological incompatibility. There's a contradiction living inside this democratic party of ours that we've talked a lot about, <clears throat> you know, um, this, this is a fractious coalition. It's held together at this point in large part, uh, by the culture war and a resistance to Trump. Um, you know, and so on the one hand, it's encouraging that, you know, that this has the ability to kind of hold mainstream democratic party establishment, um, accountable to their base. 
it turns out to actually kind of right. like the postal service. Yeah. And, so and again, it's going to uh, tie yeah. their hands in the future, yeah. perhaps, you know, if, if, if they, if we play this right on the, on the flip side, if we don't get over this culture war bullshit, we're going to miss out on a critical opportunity to join the hands of workers across this phony ideological culture war divide and unite Trump supporting mail, mail carriers in Iowa with, you know, radical mail, mail carriers in Philly, you know? So right. it's, it's a, it's a, yeah. And I will, and man, I really hate, I'm going to take it here, but so like probably most people listening, I mean, for years I've been hearing that, you know, you got to vote Democrat or else fascism. And I hate that, but God damn, this time, man, feels scary to me. And I'm just saying that in a sense of, you know, you know, again, I mean, stealing the election. I mean, this is important. We, I mean, I know bourgeois democracy sucks. I know Biden sucks, but like, voting rights were fought for and won and this is something to take serious and while i think the democrats might privatize post service in 15 years i think trump will do it in four years and i've been telling people basically that and the national labor relations board in itself is reason enough for me to take 15 minutes to vote and again i cannot believe i'm saying please vote right now but (laughs) the way i look at it the way i look at it is like come on man 15 minutes of your life and As the you know, might put it, right. come on, man. A lot of people, you know, a lot of people talk about Trump being incompetent. Yes, in a way, but also, I mean, he's he's been able to advance a traditional Republican agenda very effectively and very quickly. And I mean, again, I hate to sound like this liberal hy- hysterics, but like former years, yeah, you might see the post service privatized and the NLR- NLRB destroyed. Um, so I don't know. Just putting that out there. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that's a. I mean, that's an incredibly important point. And I'm glad that you brought up the NLRB part because that's something that most people aren't tracking. And honestly, even most socialists necessarily, right, you know, aren't aren't thinking in those terms, right? Certainly people who I see like arguing about this stuff and, you know, left-wing online spaces or whatever. Uh, because generally speaking, right, the the issues, like the stuff that like, liberals would talk about would be like maybe the Supreme Court, right? That, uh, although that's also not exactly irrelevant to the crusade to, to, to smash what's left of public, you know, sector uh, unionism, uh, which is still quite a bit, like you said, you know, unlike private sector unionism, um, you know, Janice just happened, right? You know, that wasn't that long ago. Okay. Uh, and they've got more where that comes from. Uh, but the NLRB thing isn't something because it's not high profile. It's, it's not something you see people yelling about on MSNBC or, you know, or, or Fox, right. You know, then that I think it slides past a lot of people's radar. Uh, and that again, I mean, like I, I always just think like, all right, yes, obviously it's a terrible thing to have to vote for, for, for Joe Biden. It's disgusting, right? We, we all worked very hard to avoid having to do this. Uh, but also, um, given that uh, there is no successful socialist project without an organized working class at the base of it. And, you know, without that, everything else just shouting into the wind. Uh, and, you know, that like the American labor movement is severely on the defensive right now. And so whether you have the version of a, a ruling class strategy for managing the country that basically accepts, okay, public sector unions will still exist. We'll try to weaken them in various ways, but we're not going to try to eliminate them outright or a ruling class strategy 
that actually does go for just trying to squeeze them out entirely, like that's something we should really, really care about. Yeah. What did you say, Ben? You called it like a couple months ago on the show, like uh, riffing on uh, Adolf's uh, piece from 2016, like yeah. lying, uh, vote for the lying neoliberal warmonger. Like what was it? Vote for the hair sniffing something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're going to have to do it, guys. We're gonna have yeah. To and I guess what I, I look, I get a little confused at why this debate is so wrought because like right. nothing about voting, taking 10 minutes to vote. As soon as you leave that booth, nothing will stop you from continuing you know, to work in your union or to build the alternative like we tried to do with Bernie. You know, it's like we, we have two bad options. Pick the less worse. Like you, you voting is not like signing on to Biden's moral record and you are now condemned, you know. So I don't yeah, think it has yeah. to be that complicated. Yeah, no question. I mean, I also think that part of the problem is that because, I mean, I don't know, maybe just because like, we don't have, you know, it's like a separate labor or socialist party in the U.S. And so, like, the whole political tradition is a little bit more stunted. I don't know, right? But, like, the way that American progressives and leftists tend to talk about it, uh, it's a choice between either telling the truth about Biden or, or whoever, right, and, uh, and being an abstentionist or, or you know, third-party uh, voter or whatever, uh, and lying, right, and saying, oh, Biden's, you know, may, might not be perfect, right, you know, but, like, he's basically good, uh, whereas it seems like there are a lot of other countries where there's just a much healthier tradition as far as that kind of thing goes. Like, uh, I'm thinking about, like, in 2002 in France, there's a runoff between the justly hated conservative incumbent Jacques Chirac and the neo-fascist Jean-Marie Le Pen, and, like, French communists put up posters in the streets of Paris that just said, vote for the crook, not the fascist. Right. And like yeah. that, that, that level of honesty seems much healthier to right. me. And I think it's more in touch with ordinary people. I mean, most people understand like Biden's not some great thing, but it's like, yeah, what, what, what are actions do we got? Let's, let's come back to this disparities piece real quick and wind up on that because you know, we're in this moment now, this, this USPS, when I see the libs, uh, the wine moms tweeting about, you know, protect the real boys in blue. And they got pictures of like heroic postal worker and mail carrier. <clears throat> you know, it warms the heart. It, it harkens back to the Bernie days. It makes me feel like, you know, like the, you know, the, we're getting the band back together. Um, this can very easily get swept away in, 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 in the culture war. Um, you know, I, I guess, you know, what, what is your feeling about how this is, um, is this taken seriously on the socialist left enough? Is this, is, is this going to crack the veneer of this kind of disparitarian um, culture warrior um, impulse that is, is, let's be honest, kind of hegemonic right now? Uh, certainly in the progressive sector, the, the, the uh, non-industrial, uh, sorry, the, the um, nonprofit industrial complex is what I like to call them. And, and, and even, even like elements of DSA, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, no, I don't think it's going to crack the haze that we're under but you know and of course it's hard to talk about the left in general or dsa in general you know because it it can be it can vary a lot locally but you know i mean there are just some indications of you know uh this should be something that it's like all hands on deck and and again and part of going back to this 91 percent approval is like this is a rare opportunity for the left to be like on the side of where 
the overwhelming majority of the population is at. And, and again, we have, there's very few United public services in the United States to point to that are this loved and that are actually universal and public, you know? And I think people, and this goes back to this work of like organizing for the long term and, and building up our capacity. So, you know, what I would like to see people doing, and I'm, I'm just going to brag about Philly a little bit, but what we're kind of looking towards is not only like for this, for the crisis now, but people should see this as like building a coalition for hopefully after we get through this crisis. So like, just as an example, you know, in Philly, we're working with the Postal Workers Union and we've been doing various events and now there's flyering. And, you know, I brought up with the president of the local, like, hopefully after this, maybe we should initiate a campaign on postal banking. And the union has this in some places and basically what they're doing in certain cities not enough yet is pressuring the postmaster general to pilot a postal banking program. And, you know, but they got to multiply that, but it's like, now if you can form a broad public coalition or with the union, you can turn that same network, which, which hopefully could include a lot of liberals, you know, turn that same network into a public campaign for postal banking. And it's such an idea that's not that radical, not that scary, probably a lot less scary than Medicare for all for some people. You know, but people should now, people should be looking at the work now as like building the seeds of that network and that relationship building, hopefully with these unions. And okay, now we've saved the post service. Now let's try to get postal banking actually on the agenda, at least locally. Um, but again, I mean, this is the kind of more mature strategic thinking that should be going on. And again, it, and it takes persistence. Like you gotta, if you're going to really do that, you got to focus on it for a while and do it well, you know, and build from there. So it is with it when it's yeah, not hot it's, anymore. That's the thing. You got to prioritize. Right. You got to stick with it for the long haul. And when the news cycle shifts to the next right. outrage, right, we have to have the wherewithal to, and, and the, and the maturity to, to stick with it. Right. And right. not leave these workers and these connections that we've made in that short time, not leave them hanging. Right. Uh, that's that's right. the kind of left that you know we we talk about all the time on this show. It's like that we've got to work towards building, and uh, yeah, you're killing it. You yeah. guys are killing it over there. I guess one thing I would say, Paul, just piggybacking off of what you said, is that this is a particularly special moment, and it's a moment that can pass. So the fact that postal workers have 91 percent approval, the more that elites carve away at the services and degrade them the those numbers will shrink you know its popularity will shrink if if they if people start to see the postal service is not actually doing its job and serving its function and so this is a moment in which we have the sort of general will as it were but that's not going to last and that's also another point to being persistent recognizing that this is a really crucial moment mm-hmm. yeah for sure and i'll just say you know people in your area you know if you are in a DSA chapter, definitely try to get them doing this. But even if not, I mean, you can start flyering um, even without that or trying to get a phone bank together, you know, whatever w- will help. Um, but yeah, I mean, just try to look at this as like the beginning of a more long-term thing around the Postal Service. Awesome. Thanks for joining us, Paul. Uh, yeah. yeah we, we, let's make this a thing, man. Come back. Yeah. Home. Give us give us the, uh, the post office. Uh, uh, you know, update Paul Prescott, the postal service. Uh, I, uh, I prefer postal Paul, uh, postal Paul. <laughs> yeah. All right. We got it. We got it. You're, you're the guy. You're the guy. So yeah, man, thank, thanks for joining. All right. uh, yeah. yeah. Thanks for having, have thanks, a good one. Paul. 
All right, everybody, stay tuned. We're going to be joined by UE General President Carl Rosen. We're going to give a proper introduction in just a moment. And before then, I just want to remind you guys that this show is brought to you entirely due to the generosity of our patrons. Uh, we absolutely cannot do this without your support. So head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits. The link is in the show notes. You guys are familiar with Patreon by now. And become a subscriber of DPS. You'll get access to all of our back catalog of B-sides. It goes back almost four years now. Uh, and you'll get access to our weekly B-side. It's going to be uh, an extension of today's conversation with Carl Rosen. It's coming up. So you guys are going to miss out. It's going to be very sad uh, if you do. So head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and smash that subscribe button at a level at which you are comfortable and you will get the entirety of today's episode as well as all of the future episodes to come. So shouts out to all of the patrons past and present. We've got a long haul ahead of us. I think DPS is one of the few shows out there, one of, you know, a half a dozen or so that really takes this kind of, hell, I can't even say they're half a dozen, unfortunately, but this kind of labor centric view of bread and butter socialism for fuck's sake. And um, we take that seriously. And with the addition of Brianna, um, really pumped to kind of double and triple down on that, right, Brianna? I mean, you, uh, I'm just going to shout you out. You are responsible for bringing Carl Rosen, UE General President, onto the show. And um, yeah, it's something that's really important to us. It'll be seamless. Sounds good. Yeah, I'm sorry that we can't get the, uh, the union poster in the background. <laughs> awesome. Right. You can see, you know who that is, right? Is that Norma Ray? That is Norma Ray. That, that, nice. that was a poster the Steelworkers released the year the movie came out. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> I would love to peruse that office just, just for artifacts and just, you know, general. Yeah, well, this is, this, uh, this is my home one. The, the office at our union hall okay. is one that's got a lot yeah. of, I mean, stuff back from like the 1940s. So that's yeah. it. Oh, yeah. that's awesome. Great. So, Carl, I'll introduce you. So, um, we have Carl Rosen with us today. Carl Rosen is the general president of United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers of America, which is a democratic national union representing some 35,000 workers in a wide variety of manufacturing, public sector, and private sector service jobs. So, UE is an independent union, which means that it's not affiliated with the AFL CIO proud of its democratic structure and progressive policies. Carl, you've been a member of UE since 1984 when you joined the UE Local in UE Local 190 in Chicago as a maintenance electrician. Mm. UE is uh, one of the most progressive unions in the country. Uh, it's been an early advocate of Medicare for All, an early endorser of Bernie Sanders this electoral cycle. And you guys just released a pamphlet called Them and Us, which describes UE's principles and its general approach to organizing or class struggle unionism, which I'm excited for us to talk about. So before we do that, I thought it would be nice to just have you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became involved in the labor movement. Sure. Great. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to the, uh, the conversation. So I grew up in a household uh, on the southwest side of Chicago, working class area. Both of my parents were involved as uh, labor activists, organizers, eventually staff. My mother for a while went over to the community organizing side, then came back to labor coalition side. Uh, it, was, it was a harder struggle for her as a, as a woman from the uh, 1950s on trying to do that work and try to, I mean, 
you know, they, they had started out as rank and file activists. And when she had kids, uh, back then you couldn't maintain your job in the packing houses. You, you lost your job and then maybe you got one if you came back in the workforce sometime later. So, so it was harder for her to be consistent through it. But they, they both had come of age towards the end of the uh, Great Depression and going into World War II, and, and they got their politics in. They, they, you know, there was a, a big swing to the left amongst a lot of folks, and, and they picked that up. Uh, they, went, they actually went to both college and graduate school. That's where they met and, uh, and decided around 1951 that uh, what were needed maybe were a few less uh, professionals. In fact, my father was studying nuclear physics under Enrico Fermi. And decided the world didn't need more people making nuclear weapons. It needed people working for social justice so they didn't get used. So they they left school and and went into uh, into the labor movement. Basically, they they uh, got jobs in in uh, in regular factories and uh, and they carved out a life of uh, of struggle for social justice, uh, working for uh, uh, racial justice on the southwest side of Chicago, which was not an easy thing to do in those days. Um, and they raised uh, three kids. Uh, as part of the movement. So I come by it naturally in that sense. Having said that, uh, I likewise, you know, uh, was fortunate enough to go off and get a good college education. And then I had to kind of make a decision. And towards the end of uh, college, I, I had a conversation with my parents where I said, you know, I've decided, I've kind of looked at the world and what you guys did and, and what what's needed out there. And I'd like to see if I could contribute to the labor movement also. And and uh, and they said, well, you've got a couple choices. Uh, one is to get some skills that can be helpful to the labor movement. Well, you know, I was good at math. So they said, you know, you could be an accountant or something like that or, you know, become a lawyer or whatever uh, and go to work for a union. And you can do some good work, but you'll also always be working for whoever's running the union. Right. And the reality is a lot of the unions are not being very well run and not being run necessarily always by good people. Yeah. And uh, And you're going to have to do what they tell you to do. Or you can go into a workplace and and be a regular working person and uh, and help build the union in your workplace. And if you do a good job, uh, your uh, fellow workers might decide that you're somebody who's worth uh, uh, you know supporting into a leadership role. And you can you know build a base over time and and use that to you know speak about the things you want to speak about in the way you want to and help. If you can convince your members that that's the right thing to do, you you can help bring people along. But if you go the later latter route, you could also end up in the wilderness. And they told me some stories of people they knew who had gone into workplaces in the 50s. And here it was now almost 1980, and they were still in the wilderness. So, uh, uh, you know, they, they kind of said, take your pick. So I, I, I decided to go the route of, uh, of uh, becoming a, a, a electrician, a maintenance electrician, since that you know, meant that you would you would have some flexibility and some skills that could carry to different places. So I took some trade school classes and and uh, got uh, got a, a job initially with the with SEPTA, the transit system in Philadelphia, which had a lot of money. It was right after Reagan got elected, but the federal pipeline was still open. They had a lot of money to hire electricians and train them. Uh, so a whole bunch of us got hired and got on the job training. I did that for a couple of years and then moved back to Chicago, where I was originally from, and. Uh, and uh, kicked around uh, all together. I worked 13 years as a maintenance electrician, and and got more and more involved in uh, in union stuff throughout. And uh, wouldn't trade it for anything. Best trade union education it was. So that that was my route. And I highly encourage it uh, to any young folks who want to know how they can help contribute to the labor movement. I regularly have that conversation with folks coming for advice. Obviously, 
you know, the big factories aren't there the way they used to, et cetera. But there's, there are still lots of unionized workforces and there's lots of places that need to be unionized. And, uh, you know, if, if you can uh, do it, I think you, you have a, a much better uh, sense of, of uh, what it's going to take to uh, move the working class to where it's needed to make real change in this country. Yeah. Beats the hell out of driving for Grubhub or Uber, you know, anyway, uh, you know, I mean, it's not, you're going to have a long uphill battle ahead of you, but there, you know, there's not a whole lot of good options out there, is there? No, no. So in a way, in a sense, you were kind of like a, a red diaper baby uh, involved in the labor movement, uh, born and bred, uh, which is great. Great. Well, I know that uh, we'd probably be here all evening if if you went through the entire history, but I thought it would be useful to go through just the highlight reel of some of UE's history from its founding and also its relationship to the CIO and its ultimate break in 1949. Mm -hmm. An important thing to know about UE is it was really built from the bottom up. There were workers who were already organizing in the electrical parts industry um, at companies like GE and Sylvania and RCA, places like that, where they had started self-organizing in the mid-1930s and had built their own locals. And, I, I uh, you know, they weren't at the point where they had, you know, contracts in most cases, et cetera, but, but they, were, they were there. They were established. They had organization. Um, they, had, they had leadership. And they decided to come together, and that was our founding convention, where Folks came together in a snowstorm in Buffalo, is the, is the story, uh, and said, let's form a national union. And they saw the role of the national union uh, being not to direct the locals or run the union. It was to go out and organize the unorganized in the industry. Uh, this is a different history than, say, the steelworkers, mm-hmm. which was formed um, when the miners decided the steel industry needed to be organized because they, that was their main customer. And it would help to have that. And, and so they hired a bunch of organizers and set up something called the Steelworker Organizing Committee. So that was organized from the top down, which, which meant, therefore, it was a lot easier for it to fall into a long period of top down, uh, very corrupt leadership uh, that, that lasted for several decades, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, once the, from the McCarthy era on. So UE always had that bottom up. And so a real strong sense of workers running their own union. Uh, the members run their union. This union is a, is a, uh, a common saying uh, on a lot of T-shirts you'll see uh, that UE locals have um, and, uh, and a, a fierce sense of local autonomy. And, mm-hmm. and you know, locals don't get trusted for political reasons or, you know, any, any of those sorts of things in our, in our union. Uh, people speak up and say what they want. And if you don't like it, well, then you got to argue with it <laughs> and yeah, see who that. can win a majority. Um, nice democratic culture in action there, right? I want, I want to touch on these because these are these are real flashpoints in UE's history that coincide with important like labor history events as well. Like in 1936 was when you know organizers are going out there and CIO and, and elsewhere and UE obviously. So we're hearing is and, and saying you know, did you hear that? FDR wants you to have a union, right? right? So here here's an here's an example of like you know, electoral uh, kind of action at the, at the federal level of uh, being used in a, in a very smart and savvy opportunistic way by labor organizers, uh, you know, in 1936 to, to organize the unorganized. And then you can talk, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that, how that kind of plays into the, the role of UE's founding. It's something that I think a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters were hoping uh, we could benefit from to get that kind of synergy, to use a stupid business buzzword, but right. the synergy between the federal level and the labor sector. Um, 
And, and then, of course, you know, you were expelled from the CIO in 1949, which is another flashpoint in labor history, which, you know, kind of uh, the, the aftermath of Taft-Hartley and the, and the struggles of, of maintaining that kind of independent organizer bottom-up appeal uh, in, in, the, in the, the darker days of militant trade unionism, which also happened to coincide with, you know, the booming American economy and advent of business unionism. But yeah, just kind of narrate the history of UE on those terms. Sure. And I'm going to start with what you just said about Bernie Sanders, because, uh, you know, we, we've been very close to Bernie since he first became mayor of Burlington, Vermont. And it's because that's what he did all through the 90s and since with us in Vermont is uh, he would speak up to folks and uh, who were looking at whether they should have a union or not and say, yeah, you should join a union and, and it should be UE. It's a, it's a really good kick-ass democratic union and, and you won't be, uh, you won't be disappointed. So, so this idea of, a, of, uh, of elected officials making a difference in the environment is absolutely true. Uh, so, but yeah, look, that didn't happen in a vacuum in 1936 at Roosevelt, you know, that, that, you know, the, the Wagner act passed that, 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 you know, kind of legalized, unions in a way that they, they hadn't fully been up to then, uh, or at least new me- mechanisms to encourage encourage uh, labor unions to be able to be in place and forced employers to some extent to have to recognize them. It, you know, there, there had been a lot of struggle all through the 1920s. Uh, there was something called the Trade Union Education Leagues that were, uh, that were educating a lot of folks, uh, even though they couldn't do much with it yet. Uh, and, and actually, it grew out of the IWW, the Wobblies, uh, 20 years earlier and the struggles they had had and the idea of having an industrial union uh, for all workers, um, which means everybody in the industry was organized together, as opposed to, say, in the steel industry in 1919, they tried to do the great steel strike. And there were something like 20 or 30 different unions in the steel industry. And, and the company, you know, set to work buying off one section or another, setting them against each other and, and, and the whole strike collapsed. Uh, and so people knew they had to go a different route. And then the Great Depression hit. And it, it, you know, it was there was a crisis of capitalism. They knew that if they didn't increase the purchasing power of working people, that the whole system was going down the drain. They were and they were very afraid because the Soviet Union existed. There was real existing socialism, whatever imperfections that might have happened. It was there as an example of a system other than capitalism. And uh, and so they felt the need to you know improve the material conditions for workers, and they knew that individual employers you know will continue to do a race to the bottom to you know keep impoverishing everybody, beggar thy neighbor, and uh, and so they they had to put some structural things in place, and and you know uh, some of them realized that well maybe letting workers actually uh, organize in such a way that they can have uh, uh, you know increased uh, income might. Help, and it would also help with the fact that workers were doing it and demanding things and getting into violent clashes with the bosses when they weren't allowed. So this was a way of, uh, of kind of institutionalizing things. So, you know, it, it, the, the labor movement just grew by leaps and bounds. And the, the whole industry got, uh, the whole electrical industry almost got uh, organized by UE. We got up to about 600,000 members in just like a five-year period. Uh, the steel workers, similarly, the auto workers, similarly, all, all the major industries, rubber, you name it. And then World War II came, everybody pitched into the war effort. Uh, there were supposedly wage price controls, but the, uh, uh, the wages were controlled a lot more than the prices were. And what wasn't controlled at all were profits and corporate profits went through the roof. And in 1946, the war was over and the workers said, we want our fair share now. You guys made a ton of money. We want it. Had a huge strike of all the major industries simultaneously, uh, 
all with a big wage demand. It was the closest this country's ever had uh, come to a national general strike. Mm-hmm. And it scared the hell out of big business. And simultaneous with that, uh, the CIO unions, which is what all the new industrial unions were, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, had the temerity to form uh, with unions from across the world, something called the World Federation of Trade Unions, which uh, basically posited that we needed to have uh, an international order that could lead to peace. And for that to happen, there had to be justice and there had to be improvements for working people throughout the world. And that also scared the hell out of the working, uh, the ruling class. And that combination led to a, a famous speech by, uh, famous to us, at least the head of GE, General Electric, uh, Charlie Wilson, who went on to become Eisenhower's uh, Secretary of Defense eventually, where he said, America faces two problems, Russia abroad and labor at home. And that was, to us, the real declaration of the Cold War. Others point to a speech by uh, Winston Churchill in Missouri. We think it really started with this. And uh, and they bought, uh, you know, there were some sections of the labor movement that were still backward, the, the AFL portions. And they uh, managed to convince some other folks in the CIO to buy into this idea that if if unions will just agree to not really challenge corporate power on the workplace, on the workforce, work floor, and uh, and if you will definitely agree not to say anything about foreign policy and just let the the uh, bipartisan consensus uh, American foreign policy, uh, uh, which was really about the construction of American empire, uh, have its way, then you know then we'll at least make sure you get decent wage increases and maybe some benefits. And uh, too much of labor bought that deal, and uh, that led to a big battle within labor. There were actually uh, eleven unions that left the CIO in 1949, 1950. We we would say we quit before they threw us out because we stopped paying per capita when we realized that they were lining up and starting to raid us. Raids looked like this: a uh, a McCarthyite committee uh, uh, would come in, one of these House on American committees or one of the other smaller committees, and and uh, they would. Uh, they would subpoena the entire leadership of a militant union, uh, usually right at the time maybe a strike was about to happen or something like that. Uh, they'd subpoena the entire leadership. The company would use that as an excuse to fire them all as national security risks. And uh, no testimony, no nothing. You just, you know, you were gone. Uh, and then another union would show up on the doorstep and say, hey, you need a real union that can actually help you. Your, your union's been decimated. And, and nine of the 11 unions were destroyed totally. The only two that survived. Uh, were UE and the West Coast Longshore, the ILWU, and they've maintained the militant traditions. We were the unions that came out early against the Vietnam War. You name it on just about any policy over the last uh, 70 years that, uh, you know, we've been out there on the correct side on things. And uh, uh, and sometimes some of the rest of the labor movement catches up eventually, but uh, and more recently, much more quickly. But that history was really uh, laid then. And, you know, we lost... Uh, something like 80% of our membership uh, over the course of that next decade. And uh, it, it was uh, it was very brutal. And, and the this, this second round of, you know, there was kind of a first round of raids that was done in this way. The second round was uh, actually some segments of the union were taken out uh, when uh, some sections of the leadership influenced by different uh, left organizations got convinced that they needed to mainstream the union and go into one of the other bigger unions now and, and and, and make changes there from within. And every single attempt at that largely failed, and those unions continued to be business unions, brain dead, corrupt, uh, you name it, uh, but not delivering on behalf of their members, except to the extent that employers were willing to give them stuff because the economy was booming and they could afford it. 
But that all came crashing to an end as, uh, as there was a crisis in profitability in the 1970s, uh, brought on in part by the uh, oil embargo and other parts of the country world looking for looking for a bigger piece of the pie. And uh, and uh, the corporations decided, well, we don't really need to keep feeding the labor unions and the workers anymore. They don't really have any power anymore. And they they knew what they were doing. They got Reagan in there. He he uh, he fired the Patco strikers. Uh, that became open season on the uh, labor movement, and you know, really, it's been a downward spiral ever since for 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 labor as the numbers shrink every year, and and uh, that's what we're looking to try to help turn around with uh, with this them and us unionism booklet uh, that we put out, uh, trying to harken back to what it was that originally built the labor movement uh, in the 30s. People understanding which side they're on, that there is a real difference in interest between workers and employers. And you've got to understand that so that you know how to fight that fight. And the unions you see being successful right now are unions that understand that and fight on that basis. Yeah, there are so many directions we could take that. But maybe maybe now is a good time for you to talk a, a little bit about what UE does to sort of maintain the rank and file democratic culture. Um, and then we could talk a little bit about the pamphlet later. Sure. Uh, so, you know, we... we we try to start early as we're as we're organizing uh, workers in new new locals to you know try to train them to take control of their of their own affairs and and have a democratic process. It's a little harder, you know, before they actually have a fully formed local and elect their officers and all of that. Uh, and uh, you know they they've got to they've got to learn the ropes. But but from the beginning, we're trying to do education. What will, for example, uh, in the time once the union gets voted in. Um, or is recognized in some form or another in the time you have a first contract. Uh, we'll establish a steward system and, and have people uh, elect stewards and we'll start training them on, uh, on how to uh, uh, defend the rights of workers on the, uh, in the workplace. And then from there, uh, obviously, as, as uh, leaders get elected, we do a lot of uh, leadership training. We have, uh, we have a, a big binder uh, hundreds of pages long that is basically a how to run your local union Bible virtually uh, on, on how to do it that you won't see that in any other union. It's called the UE Leadership Guide. And and, uh, and, it, and it's everything from how to run a meeting to how to hold elections to how to file things at the labor board. I mean, you name it so, so that they can make their own decisions and do their own things. Uh, but, you know, they have staff support on all of that. Um, but our role for staff, and I think this is key, is very different than in other unions. Uh, staff are not allowed to go in and have conversations with the boss without without the uh, elected leadership of the local present. The, uh, the the staff are there to assist the local leadership, not to supplant them. Uh, this actually requires more work and more effort on the part of staff than in many other unions. In many unions, the staff person is supposed to go in, get a deal done, come out, tell the workers it's done, and move on. Right. Yeah. Uh, in UE, it's a lot tougher than that because you've got to get the workers involved, understanding the issue, uh, get them in there in the meetings with the boss, try to work out something that makes sense to the workers and that the boss is willing to live with. And of course, you know, the more struggle we've organized, the better that's going to be. And uh, from the worker point of view and uh, and and then help them get it ratified, etc. There's a, a lot more work that's involved in the, in the training of the of the of the members uh to, to become leaders, et cetera. We also have a, a young activist program to try and get folks, uh, you know, trained up early on, on stuff uh, and keep creating that next generation. 
We have regional councils and national conventions on a regular basis, a couple of regional councils per year in each region and, and a national convention every other year, which is still pretty frequent for most unions. A lot of, a lot of uh, education goes on there, both nuts and bolts on how to run your union, as well as political education on the, on the issues of for affecting working people. And, uh, and we have sub-regional meetings, which are smaller geographic areas, one-day meetings. People can drive in within a couple hours in the morning and drive out in the afternoon, bring different locals together. And, you know, our, our preferred, if we have enough time, we always try to have, again, that same combination, some nuts and bolts training and, and some political education, whether it's on, you know, Medicare for all or, you know, you name it, any, any issues along those lines. And then we try to engage people directly in challenging uh, their elected officials. Uh, we're, you know, we're not, you know, you, you mentioned we're an independent union. Uh, we're not only independent in that we're not in the AFL-CIO. Uh, we're independent of the Democratic Party and uh, or of any political party. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we think we've got to be able to, to, you know, speak what we believe uh, needs to be done and then try to hold elected officials accountable to that. We don't do a lot of endorsements. You've got to be a pretty special elected official to get it. Uh, Bernie Sanders certainly met that standard. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to be discussing uh, Joe Biden and our general executive board next week. But, uh, you know, our, our membership spoke in the convention last year and said, you know, we know we need to get rid of Trump. So, but, you know, we can also talk, you know, the way we've done it historically is we've talked honestly. The person the Democrats are running, are running is uh, no uh, reliable ally of ours. We're not going to sugarcoat it. On the other hand, you know, the person on the other party is, uh, is so terrible, we got to get him out. But what we really got to do is build a party of our own. And that's what we still believe. We've been calling for that and working for that since the 1940s. But uh, unfortunately, uh, there's not enough others there right now uh, on that. So um, so through all of those ways, we, we get the members involved. When they first you know, show up at a membership meeting, they frequently know very little about any union, let alone UE. Uh, they stick around enough, they're, they're going to learn a lot, and then they're going to eventually be helping train other other workers to become uh, labor activists and leaders in their own locals. Yeah, that's so critical. There's an absence of institutional memory that has resulted from the just decimation of trade unions over the past 35, 40 years. And it sounds like what you guys do is try to uh, inject a bit, a little, a, a little artificial sense of institutional memory from without uh, in order to get this uh, internally running uh, on its own. Right. You know, give them some help, give them a leg up and, and make sure that the staff are facilitating the needs and wishes and the self-management of, of the workers themselves in these locals. And that is absolutely laudable. It's incredible. And uh, I can't wait to talk much, much more about this with you. Um, as, a, as a note, uh, we're going to end it here. The A side is going to be uh, that's a wrap. We're going to take it over to the B side with Carl and myself and Brianna and Ben. If you guys would like to hear the remainder of our chat, uh, be sure to head over to patreon.com slash dead pundits and become a subscriber today. We have to build these socialist left-wing labor-centric institutions. DPS is a a small and humble stab at that. We do great work and uh, very proud to bring people like Carl Rosen on uh, and many others in this uh, tradition to to spread this word and again to try to inject some of that institutional memory into a left that uh, you know is in a a sense kind of struggling to remake itself um, after a period of of, of, of downturn um, and but I think we've got this you know, the, the, the road is uh, stacked against us but uh, thanks Carl we're going to sign off here for the masses and we're going to take it over to the B side thanks for joining us this week thank you